From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state, Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, uh, my name is Pelena Roth-Taylor and this is TNT Radio. Uh, we've got two guests on today and uh, with respect to the big story of the moment in Scandinavia, they both have very interesting things to say. Um, Scandinavia has been a white spot on the map as regards the international media, even the alternative media. But um, the zone is hotting up because uh, of the NATO membership of Finland and the uh, Swedish NATO membership, which has been held up and is in currently in abeyance, um, officially because uh, the Turks, who have a veto right, who are also NATO members, are worried about uh, Swedish uh, government officials harboring uh, the PKK, which is the Turkish activists or Kurdish activists. Uh, but I think unofficially is because the Turks are trying to um, get concessions out of uh, Russia, with whom they have this on and off relationship. Um, by holding up the NATO membership, they are uh, sending signals to Russia that they can extract concessions. And uh, Erdogan talks about not creating another zone of conflict. Um, I think also um, there is this issue of Quran burning. Um, the Swedes allow quite a lot of Quran burning to take place. Private individuals standing outside embassies of Muslim countries and setting fire to the Muslim holy book. And that causes uh, a, an eruption of anger every time it happens in the Turkish media and Turkish MPs. Um, it's it's so regular that one almost wonders whether there's something going on that the uh, anti-NATO Swedes are, are getting these um, activists, some of whom are sort of on the far right, up to doing this sort of thing so that Turkey will continue to say no. Uh, the other country that's rejecting Swedish NATO membership is Hungary. And this is interesting because the Hungarians and the Swedes have been uh, frenemies or opponents in the European Council for years. Um, Sweden represents the acme of ultra-liberalism on gay rights and on open borders, whereas Turkey speaks frequently about the importance of uh, protecting Hungarian and national culture and uh, wants a, a rapid peaceful solution to the Ukraine war, which involves uh, concessions by Ukraine, whereas the Swedes are among the most hardline uh, of countries, surprisingly. We'll get to that. Um, and um, the cultural conservatism is Hungary's losing population, like many European countries, uh, because of the low birth rates and have very family-friendly policies, whereas the Swedes do not worry about that sort of thing and, uh, you know, teach transgenderism and, and gay rights uh, to from a very early age. Um, and I think the Hungarians, who've probably lost the international media battle with the Swedes, who have, have the backing from um, the American liberal press, probably feel that they can get their own back, that for once the Hungarians have the power to do something that the Swedes want, so that they've been holding up Swedish NATO membership. Um, but I think that once the Turks say yes, the Hungarians will say yes. And it's anybody's guess what will really happen. I mean, you hear on the news uh, the Swedish excitable correspondents predicting that the Turks will say yes, but then it doesn't happen. We'll see. This is a topic that's very close to my heart. I spent uh, part of my youth in Sweden. And this was in the 1980s and the final decade of the Cold War. And uh, I then moved to England um, at the age of 15 or came back to England. Um, but um, the the memory of, of, of living in Sweden at the, at the 
height of what you could call the Second Cold War when Reagan and Thatcher were uh, at loggerheads with the aged Soviet leadership and it remains a very strong in my mind. I mean, um, there was uh, quite a lot of war scares going on. And I remember standing on a beach in southern Sweden, looking out over the Baltic Sea and wondering whether Russians were going to come at any moment. Um, the, the coverage in the newspapers was as feverish as I can remember. And for those of us who can remember the early 1980s, it was a time of great peace marches and nuclear-free zones all over Europe. Uh, and that's a total contrast to, to today, uh, where there's no peace movement to speak of, really. Uh, but it also it raised the emotional temperature. And I think for many, many of us, and my next guest, Jens Sørensen, who's a professor at uh, Gothenburg University, he's my age, and we'll both remember that period very vividly. So what was interesting about the uh, 1980s in Sweden was that um, one of the things that raised the um, tension in people's minds with these regular intrusions by Soviet submarines. They, they never surfaced, but the media reported breathlessly that they contained special forces and they're about to knock out uh, Swedish military installations in a lightning attack. Well, it now turns out we've all the papers have been a lot of uh, good journalists, real journalists as opposed to fake journalists, have done uh, books and reportages, and I did a book as well, that showed that these were actually NATO submarines who were training the Swede, Swedish Navy, but also carrying out what we now know to be a psyops, which was to, to denigrate and, and reduce the reputation of Olof Palme, who was the Swedish prime minister at the time. And the person who can talk about that is our second guest. Um, who is Jan Stocklasser, who wrote an award-winning book uh, about the Palmer assassination. I mean, Palmer is sort of Sweden's JFK, if you like. I mean, he's an enormous figure, uh, and the, the, his death is an enormous topic of conversation for uh, writers. And uh, to get to the bottom of who killed him is a sort of holy grail of Swedish investigative journalism. And Jan Stocklasser sort of came out of nowhere and wrote this excellent book, and it was turned into a four-part Discovery TV series, which actually went on to win, win a Golden Rose at Montreux, uh, which is the best festival for documentaries. So he's really made a splash. And it so happens that I happen to think his theory about who did the assassination is actually the right one. So he's kudos there, and we'll hope we'll get some nuggets of what he's found out since the TV series was published, because once you reach that high profile, you get a lot of contacts from people. So we'll see what he has to say. But my first interviewee is Jens Sørensen, a professor at Gothenburg University, and he will tell us about NATO, pro and NATO opinion in Sweden. This is TNT Radio. Giving you what you want. I want the fact. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. So, hi, Professor Sorensen. How are you doing? Hi, I'm well, thank you. We are, um, could you tell us a little bit about um, the 1980s in Sweden and your memory of growing up in a country that had been neutral for 200 years and had a reputation for being an excellent peace broker and where people were basically educated that it was a country that was the white hats between the red hats to the east and the blue hats that were NATO and was superior to either. It was almost part of every Swede's identity. And I guess if you talk to Australians maybe today, they will think so too. They'll say, well, Sweden's a neutral country that doesn't take sides and is a kind of moral paragon. Can you tell us a little bit about that in your own words? 
Yes, the 1980s. It was a um, very different country at the time, I think. Um, I mean, depending on which period of the 1980s, but if you talk about um, the first period of Reagan, uh, you had a very, very sort of hard hardening of the Cold War. Um, and you had, I mean, the immediately preceding that was the, um, the Soviet um, uh, installation of SS-20s and so on in the late 70s and the new arms race with um, the US putting up um, uh, new missile systems and so on. And in Sweden, of course, there was what we call the submarine crisis. Um, so in 1981, there was a Soviet submarine stranding on a Swedish um, rock uh, in the archipelago. There's a lot of archipelago around in Sweden. Um, and the Swedish Navy blocked it there so it couldn't leave. And uh, it was a very tense period for, um, I think it was eight days or something like that. Uh, but after that, after they solved that crisis or they negotiated that crisis, there was um, a very intense couple of years when the Swedish um, Navy was chasing submarines. Um, and it's turned out that some of those submarines were in fact uh, not submarines. They may have been, um, uh, well, animals, you know, different sounds and so on. But there was a big, a big um, intensification. Uh, and, and that also created a culture of, um, yeah, a culture of confrontation where Sweden was supposed to be ready for war and uh, so on. And, um, I guess I you, that, do, do you, some of these young people who were young conscripts back then now seem to be ones occupying senior positions and they want to have it out. They haven't, you know, they were young men and they, this is the war that they have had in the eighties somehow, but carry on what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, th I think there is some, um, I mean, we, we, did, we had conscript then, so everybody did their national service, including me. Um, and I was in the, in the late period before, before the Cold War ended completely, and before the, so Sweden was Sweden was neutral and uh, alliance free and so on, but of course every well not everyone but educated people and people in the certainly people who did national services and so on we we knew that Sweden had certain special agreements with the United States since the nineteen fifties, and Sweden had been. Uh, providing um, intelligence information. Sweden was a very important intelligence um, informer for the so for the, um, the West because it was close to the Soviet Union, and at that time it was mainly getting radio signals through airplanes and so on. So Sweden was actively involved in that and sent, passing on information to the US in exchange for other things and so on. So. Sweden was in the Western camp, so to speak, but it was nominally neutral for 200 years. So it was deeply ingrained. and it, it, it has been deeply ingrained in Swedish political culture and Swedish national identity that we are neutral. And this was just taken away without any public debate or any opinion making process or something. It happened very quickly 
uh, here um, recently that suddenly Sweden is not neutral anymore. Do you think there was a divide then? I mean, I, what I've um, my research leads me to believe that the, the Social Democrats, who are the sort of hegemonic party in Sweden, they've been ruling since 1932, and they were a working class party, but quite a solid kind of, I mean, they saw themselves as the party of state, basically, um, but also a party of humanitarian assistance and humanitarian help around the world. I mean, that you talk about the Swedish moral imperialism, that the, the Swedes went out with a moral duty in their knapsack to help the uh, third world and used its neutral status in a way to tell the, the, the developing world or the global south or whatever you call it these days that you know we're western and and but we're we're not like those bad nato people or those bad red people on the soviet side we're 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 untainted because we didn't never had any colonies i mean apart from something in 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 the caribbean whatever 300 years ago so they went down to, and they were very, very, I think this, that people talk about that um, Sweden was a very prosperous country and, and the Swedish working class had achieved bourgeois status by the 1980s. That is, they'd lost their raison d'etre for voting for the left-wing Social Democrats. So what the Social Democrats did was they found a moral crusade against a black um, oppression in Southern Africa. And that became very much their game, political game, with Olof Palme at speech, holding speeches, saying we've got to fight apartheid. At the same time, he was kind of quite realist about the Soviets. I mean, he he said, let's talk to, we've got to talk to um, uh, the intelligence services of the West, of course, but we've also got to talk to the KGB. And I know that there's an interview with a head of the Swedish intelligence, counterintelligence, Olof Fronstedt at the time, saying, we went ballistic and we contacted MI6. Our prime minister wants to, us to talk to the KGB as well. And so I think there were two Swedens. There was a military and intelligence Sweden, which was totally in the Western camp. And then there was a political Sweden, which was tried to push through the, a more neutral policy. And I think, I think our next guest will tell us that that's, that will, is what led to Palm prime minister's assassination. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what your opinion is of uh, the what why is there no peace movement in sweden uh, now almost and what your colleagues and students say about the whole russia ukraine crisis because you you have to me had a very clear view of what's really going on there but if you just guided by what's on swedish media you get a com almost a completely erroneous view of the progress of the war it's even worse than the information you get from the us and the uk media tell us a little bit about that well, I, I think that, well, as you probably know, there is almost no, no uh, debate or anything. It's it's a very strong um, confrontational narrative. Sweden is um, uh, in the middle of a sort of Russophobic um, paranoia at the moment, and there is not really any dissenting voices. Um, and I, but I think that's. That's the case across much of the West. It's not typical for Sweden. You, you have it in England, you have it in the US and so on. It's, it's, um, there's a lot of disinformation uh, that we have been fed over many years. We've been fed disinformation about uh, mass weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and uh, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, killing uh, babies in Kuwait City and uh, 
and uh, chemical weapon attacks in in Syria, and that uh, Trump is a Russian asset, and so on. And since the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, we've been told for a year and a half that Russia is losing and that Putin is is uh, sick, he's having cancer, he's having uh, scurvy and foot and mouth disease and Russian economy is collapsing. So we've, we've been fed all this, this narrative for a very long time. Um, and now it turns, we're slowly sort of seeing that this, this was not true. But in order to maintain that narrative, uh, that requires delusion. And I think narrative control has become very important. Um, it's become important. It's not only because of Biden's re-election and so on. It's the whole, the whole um, this decline of the West, uh, hegemonic decline of the West, sort of. And in that decline, it has become important for the U.S. to sort of rein in its allies or its vassal states and to suppress any dissenting voices or any any debate and i think that's the that's the result we've seen we've we've seen um the whole of the european union has lost its um so sovereignty in a way it's lost it's become irrelevant it's it's lost it's no longer a subject in international relations it's an object it's a uh, it's um subordinate and uh, and i think that is because during hegemonic decline, you need narrative control, and we see we see that in Sweden as well. There is no debate. There is no. There was not even any discussion about Sweden's NATO membership application. So there was no no real democratic process behind it. And I think, um, uh, yeah, it's a reflection of that in Sweden. What we see. I, it's interesting that the most. Um persuasive voices against uh, Sweden's rush to join NATO comes from old people, people who remember war or people who remember Sweden's peace movement, like Hans Bleeks, whom I yeah. interviewed not so long ago, who was the Iraq war inspector and is part of that line of, of classic Swedes who went out into the world and gave Sweden a good reputation as honest brokers. I mean, you had... Um, Folke Bernadotte, who was in the Middle East and assassinated by the Israelis in 1948, the Stern Gang, which later included Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir. And then there was Wallenberg, of course, who's probably the most famous, Raoul Wallenberg, who was this sort of um, diplomat in Budapest in 1944 and handed out Swedish diplomatic passports to <laughs> tens of thousands of people, to thousands of Jews, and that prevented their deportation to Auschwitz. And, you know, he's a hero in Israel. Um, one of the righteous ones, I think it is. And then you've got uh, Hans Blix, arguably. Um, and then you've got um, Hammarskjöld, the Swedish UN Secretary General, who died in a plane crash in 1961, which I'll talk about at some later point, because I think he was assassinated. Um, and then you've got Olof Palme, who was kind of in the shadow of these people and, 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 and more of a dislikable person, really for many people i mean i think um he was um he had a, a moral morally very powerful person very intelligent but it could also be very sarcastic and cutting and he didn't make he didn't suffer fools gladly um 
but he was very active in the Middle East, uh, in the Iran-Iraq war, and he was active in Southern Africa. And he set up this socialist international, or revived it along with other social democratic politicians in the 1970s, like uh, Willy Brandt in Germany and Kreisky in Austria. And they believed in this Ostpolitik, which was to talk to the Russians, basically. So while he was making big talk against the South Africans, for instance, he was very uh, cautious on uh, provoking or saying bad things about the Soviets. And I remember um, that the Swedish press wondered if he was a communist, you know, and, and the, the undergrowth of the of, of kind of Swedish business opinion around the moderate party and in the Swedish Labour Federation, uh, Swedish Employers Federation and the Wallenberg family and so on. So we... Um, I, to my mind, there were two divide. There was a growing dissatisfaction with Olaf Palme, and uh, he was believed to have let the submarines out. You know, we now know that there were Anglo-American submarines that were part of a game where the senior uh, officials in the, in the Swedish Defense Ministry let them out. You know, it was an agreement. But um, Palme, in the public public eye, he was talking to the Soviets and letting them out, basically, after they'd been cornered by the Swedes. So th there's this myth that there was a traitor at the top of Swedish public life, the prime minister, who was going to give away Sweden. Um, but I, I think um, the, and, and my view is that maybe that affected, Sweden's had four statesmen of peace, or four, four or five, and all of them except Hans Blick have, have been killed and assassinated. So makes me wonder, even if there were pro-peace voices in Sweden, maybe maybe they dare not step up, you know, because it's so dangerous to be a man of peace. Have you any reflections on that? Well, I, the, fir the first thing I think is important to, to say is that we, now we talk about historical continuity, how it's been during the Soviet Union and so on. But I think it's important to say that it's no longer the Soviet Union. We don't, I mean, it was a different situation in the 70s and 80s. And at that time, during the Cold War, you had people debating this. You had, they used to call them doves and hawks in those days. You had do doves and hawks, uh, but there was a debate. So you'd had, you'd had the hawks, uh, people talking about more arms and so on, so, sort of. And even in the, those who were so-called Russia experts and so on, you had doves and hawks between um, Harvard and Princeton and so on. But you always had a debate. And you had the Ostpolitik that you mentioned with, with Willy Brandt in Germany um, and from the 60s. And that reflected also in Sweden. And the whole Western Germany at that time started, it started with um, gas imports, uh, build, you know, the pipeline building. It started in Western Germany in 1973. I think the first one was opened. So a lot of the um, economic prosperity of Western Europe uh, and later European Union has been built on cheap import of uh, cheap energy from uh, Russia and raw materials from Russia. And later it's been built on cheap um, uh, consumer goods from China and so on. Now this is being cut off and it's no longer the Soviet Union. It's a different country. Russia, but we are told that it is like the Soviet Union. So we have this narrative that Russia is um, 
Well, I mean, we, we even hear these narratives that Russia wants to conquer other countries in Europe and so on. Mm. It's, it's, a really, it's a really a paranoid narrative. There is nothing indicating that Russia has any interest in, in um, uh, sort of going west or attacking any western country. It's just, it just requires, um, as I said, it requires delusion. It requires that we don't know anything about Russia. It also requires this diplomatic collapse that we've had across the West, where we're not talking to anyone. That the West used to have, I mean, we used to have, it's not just Sweden. Uh, we've had a diplomatic collapse in the EU and in the US. There is no longer any diplomacy. It's just sanctions and threats and insults uh, and confrontation. Um, while the rest of the world is baffled about that, moving away from it, no longer, no longer listening to the West, no longer listening to the Europe, Europeans, certainly. Um, and yeah, yeah. To to wind up, do, do you think yeah. that the if you had a message, if you could put out an article in the Swedish press, what are the two or three points that you'd like to make? to a wider readership, which have their blinders on and uh, re receive almost nonstop propaganda from SVT, Swedish television. Three quick points. Well, first of all, I think it's difficult to have any, any discussion at this moment, because when you're in a situation like this, any dissent is, is, uh, it's not really possible. So it will have to be something for future historians to look at what was actually happening here. Uh, during this period, but but uh, the first thing is that um, uh, I think we need to rediscover diplomacy. I think I think an important point is to say, whatever you think of Russia, you can hate it, you can dislike it, but it is there and it is um, considerable. Uh, it's, it's it's neighboring to Sweden, so we either live together or we die together. So either I think we find that, a, sorry to to summarize. I think that that's yeah. a great point on which to end, and I'd love to have you on again because um, you can tell us about the horror stories that are going on with uh, the government talking about imminent war and uh, the intelligence agencies saying that no no negotiation can be had with the Russians. But uh, you are clearly truly an expert on uh, on uh, on the relations between Russia and uh, Sweden on the non relations. So we'll have you on again soon. Uh, this is TNT Radio, and our next guest is an expert on Olof Palme, Jan Stocklasser. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus we are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company Ross Cameron on today's news talk radio TNT it's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's you have Parkinson's 
The truth is, Parkinson's disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. Worldwide, over 10 million people are living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement. And with so many places to search for information, it can be difficult to know where to begin. The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care, give you tips for living a better life, share the latest research, help you find local support, and there's a free helpline you can call. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org or call 1-800-4PD-INFO. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives together. You are about to, about to hear today's news talk and the voice of freedom. That's what this country is all about. TNT Radio. Hello, this is Pelanerith Taylor on TNT Radio. I'm here to interview Jan Stocklasser, who um, wrote an excellent book about the uh, Palmer, Olaf Palmer assassination. Olaf Palmer was assassinated in 1986, and it's since been a sort of a cultural phenomenon. I mean, the fact of his um, unsolved assassination is almost, I think, in, in shelf meterage in the Swedish police, bigger than the, the, the research files in the Dallas police for the Kennedy assassination. And of course, it's much less well known because Palmer was a, from Sweden and not an American president. But I mean, it's generated many, many books. And um, there's a Swedish forum website which discusses the assassination. And it's got hundreds of thousands of comments. And when I say comments, they're not just comments, they're essays. I mean, it's incredible the amount of speculation. It, it, it could, if, if words were bricks, these would build whole cities, you know. And um, for a certain kind of man, it's usually a man. Um, it's something that can occupy your your whole living lifetime, you know, uh, speculating about the different, going down all the different rabbit holes. And I have to say, I haven't been immune to that. And I wrote a little book about, I stopped uh, speculating about the murder. I just wrote a biography of Olaf Palmer. That was the easy option. And then along comes Jan Stocklasser, who was not one of the well-known uh, Palmer journalists, if you say, some, some well-known journalists wrote some quite good books, but he came out of the blue, at least as far as I was concerned. And I think wrote the best book of them all. And then he got a documentary series made with uh, Discovery. And uh, it, on top of that, it won the Gold Rose, I think it was at Montreux, which is the premier film festival. So he's aced everything. And what's even better is that it's not, it happens to be the true theory because there was some, I think Netflix made a, a series based on a totally faulty premise. So Jan Stocklasser, welcome to the show. Um, um, how you. did you- Good to be here. Tell us a little bit about um, your way into it. Tell us about the Palmer virus and tell us about Stieg Larsson and uh, his Palmer file. Yeah, I think your introduction is correct. It's like it's usually a man who sort of get gets bitten by the bug or or catches the virus, and I certainly did. So it's correct. It's like it's usually a man who sort of get gets bitten by the bug or or catches the virus, and I certainly did. So some 10, 12 years ago, when I for personal reasons, I would say, uh, started to dig into this. I was doing research. I was going to write a book about something else, but I. Uh, found a, a person that I thought could have been involved in the murder. And I started pulling by the threads. And uh, by coincidence, I, I after a year or, or more, I found a paper in an archive 
uh, about the person that I was interested in um, and I asked the lady who had the archive um, who wrote this paper uh, and she said Stieg Larsson and I said the crime writer and she said yes and there may be more um, and th those were the 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 magic words that uh, pulled me in even further so I started looking for more papers by Stieg Larsson uh, and it turned out that he had spent some 10 years digging into this murder also so he was caught by the bug he had the virus um, and I think that bug tell us about Stieg Larsson I mean I, I think he's one of the best selling writers some years he was one of the best spelling writers in in the English-speaking world in his translations there was yes. the girl with the dragon tattoo or something mm. and he was sort of in tell it well you tell us in your words who Stieg Larsson was and 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 what extent his fiction was inspired by Palmer well <laughs> he, he he only lived for 50 years and he wasn't famous um until he died actually he had written these three fantastic novels and they actually sold in a hundred million copies so it's definitely a record of some sort <clears throat> and when he died from a heart attack in 2004 he knew he would be famous he knew he would be rich but then he he died um so in his lifetime he was actually a a, a, a journalist and he was also doing uh, mainly doing research into um uh, right-wingers and uh, and any extremists in in the Swedish society but also outside Sweden um and that brought him into writing the novels but even more so uh, looking into the murder of our prime minister I think I mean don't you feel that um that very particular noirish atmosphere was he kind of um we, we we're sort of just stepping away from the Palmer murder for a second um it, it's a sort of flavor that was in the air in Sweden after the murder, because there were so many um, documentaries and, and and films and things that described that you had this feeling of Sweden at Stockholm in the snow on a winter's afternoon or a winter's evening. And I remember, I mean, I, I, I'm in Sweden now, but I lived in the UK for most of my life, but I came to Sweden very, very occasionally. And um, it felt like a crime, the whole country or the city, Stockholm felt like a crime story that was waiting to be made. And um, <laughs> I knew about Palma and the steps at night and people disappearing down avenues, corridors and things like that. It was very, very evocative. And he somehow, he somehow extracted the Palma murder and turned it into fictionalization. Anyway, um, and you sort of... Um, what lead us through your steps um, uh, that culminated in your finding out who you think the true assassins were, which is in the South African security community? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think you're right that Steve Larson is sort of a uh, he's the uh, his person is very much like this uh, Scandi noir, uh, Nordic noir uh, type of of stories, and he was living that type of life, and that's. Um, he was digging into these right-wing extremists in Sweden and, and sort of writing the stories. So in all of his stories, actually, uh, the Palmer murder is also mentioned. So it was his reality was actually going into his fiction also. Um, and the Swedish society, of course, you have the, sort of this on the surface, close to perfect society, at least for a while. Um, and then uh, behind that, you have all the same dark forces that you have in, 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 in any other country with corruption and politicians doing dirty stuff and the proxy wars with between the super superpowers in the 1980s um mm. so so 
that's what he was looking into um and then when i found his papers it it's i started looking in through them and those papers were actually they had been packed into cardboard boxes and forgotten for 10 years after his death so nobody looked at them before i did and and i started realizing that looking into his world stieg larsson's world and realizing that he actually had a tangible theory about who killed our prime minister uh, and that is was uh, that the south africans were behind the murder and they orchestrated it and they were usually using a swedish middleman uh, in cyprus living in cyprus in northern cyprus um, and uh, who were finding right-wingers and some other um, swedish people that would help in actually uh, executing the murder um, mm. and possibly function as some sort of scapegoats or patsies, if you wish. Mm. Do you, um, I, well, interestingly, I met, um, I was down in South Africa um, last year and I, I met Eugene de Kock's biographer, um, Anna-Marie Janssen, who wrote a really interesting book, um, really vivid book about the, um, about his life and his sort of savageries. And um, he was interesting because um, in uh, 1996, he was on trial and he sort of apparently he set his mind on, on just telling all telling everything. And he let slip that um, the South Africans had done almost like an, a four, uh, you know, uh, um, what's the word? He just dropped it in there without thinking about it, saying Palmer had been killed by the South Africans. Yes. And that sort of set off a frenzy of speculation in Sweden. And, and what happened next after that? Because the Swedish police went down, but then this, that trail died out, didn't it? T tell us about how the Swedish police have lost interest or were interested and then lost interest in the case. Well, they have sort of actively almost from the start avoided the South African uh, trail um, because it, it wasn't the first time it, it, there were there was information immediately after the murder in the first day, even there were actually information that they were behind it. And, and the middleman that I mentioned, there was also information about him. So so all the information actually came quite early on. But for different reasons, the Swedish police were looking into other other theories and they were always occupied with something else and in 1996 they had to go to south africa reluctantly because uh, the the chief inspector at the time he was actually convinced that it was this lone drug addict who had, had killed our prime minister so he, he he it took him close to two weeks before he came down to south africa and then all the swedish journalists were always there, all, all, already there waiting for him so it, it, they 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 had to go there, but they never did a thorough investigation of the South African trail. Yeah, and um, then they kind of lost interest. And the, the guy you're talking about, uh, the, what you think and I think is maybe the patsy, was this guy, uh, Christa Pettersson, who was uh, a, a failed actor, but more, much more, but spent much time on the streets, and he, he almost became an anti-hero for some Swedes because he was a kind of a he was intelligent and he had attitude, and then he turned up drunk at talk shows for which he got a lot, lot of money, and then semi-confessed but not quite confessed, and then he died under slightly suspicious circumstances, in my view. But did this, and then so that trail died, and I think that um, the Swedish police sort of picked it up at around 2014-15. There was a new burst of energy. I mean. Um, and but then they settled for another guy, didn't they? 
So um, uh, a guy who was a graphic designer, I think it was, and they settled for him, but he was not a very convincing person in your eyes. Uh, but they did go down to South Africa, and, and we'll talk about the last five years of the Palmer investigation and your your role in uncovering the truth after the break. This is TNT Radio. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying by the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands, heal our waters, and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. But every day we lose more of the places we love, and we urgently need to save endangered lands, waters, and wild species. The actions we take today will determine the tomorrow we leave to our children and grandchildren. The water they drink, the air they breathe, the beauty they experience. To learn more about how you can help protect and conserve our beautiful world, visit nature.org today. As a combat wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was going to make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. Latoya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Exposing the deep state and government overreach. You're with Pella Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk, TNT. Hello, uh, this is uh, Pella Neuroth Taylor, and I'm talking to Jan Stockklasser, who wrote a book about Olaf Palme, the assassinated Swedish prime minister who was much in favor of peace in the 1980s. So Jan, tell us a little bit, we're in 2018 now, you've just had your book published, which exposes, in my view, the true story about the Palmer assassination, that it was South African agents. But the Swedish police at that point concluded uh, something completely different, that it was some graphic designer who was an alcoholic and a kind of, a sort of, you know, well, you tell me who he was and, and, and why you think they settled for this person uh, who no serious in Palmer writer or journalist thinks is a real guy. Tell us about it. Tell us about him. Yeah, yeah. When I when I finished my book, I, I sort of handed in all the material and I had a pretty tight dialogue with with the Swedish police. And, and I was thinking that in one or two years, they will have sold it. And then suddenly they said, in six months, we will tell everybody who killed our prime minister. Uh, and I was happy and everybody was happy. And then uh, after the six months, they came with this, they went, they had a press conference and they said that, uh, no, it wasn't South Africa. Uh, it wasn't the, the right wingers in Sweden. It was this 
lone killer once again lone killer uh the graphic designer uh who happened to to work very close to this uh the murder site and who happened to step out uh, from the building very close in time to the murder um and they didn't have any evidence at all they didn't present any new evidence because this person was known for since the day of the murder um uh, and they said uh, we can't get any further because this person is dead um but there's no way to to get around him that was almost the word that they were using um um so and we have to close down the investigation it was a huge anticlimax and and the the the, the, the prosecutor and the head of it, the investigation they looked extremely awkward when they were presenting it also um and it was live broadcast live uh, all over the world and uh, that was the end sort of the scandalous end of a three decade long investigation um, that that awkwardness suggests that they didn't actually believe what they were presenting do you, do you think that they knew that, that that the truth was uncomfortable for swedish state for the swedish state i I wouldn't go that far far to know know what what I agree with that they were they didn't believe what they were saying uh even the the head of the investigation even said that he he thought that the South African trail was quite relevant so he said that during the press conference which was a very strange thing to to say um, um I can't know what the reason was behind it but I think they were they agreed with with the the government of Sweden to close down the investigation. This has been going on for too long. Let's close it down. Uh, there may be further are, uh, motives behind that, but uh, that's only speculation. I would say. Do, do you think that? Um, I mean, I think in the last episode of your discovery series, which I recommend everyone to watch because it's gripping in its own right and with very high production value. So even if you're not particularly interested in dead Swedish prime ministers, I mean, it's actually an interesting. Anyone who's interested in Nordic noir, I mean, it's it's obviously been made with that market in mind. Anyway, um, I mean, I was watching it as a sort of professional in the sense that I know all the the whole story. I even met Alf Enström back in 1994 and mm -hmm. his, his daughters, you know, who had different surnames from him really eccentric guy i mean obviously and his this tragedy of his son dying um by driving his car into a lake or something because he was put in a in a child very, care home very steve anyway. larson-esque uh, exactly i mean i couldn't believe it you know but it was and um what was i gonna say it was um i think well one interesting thing was the fact that i know um you talked to some um, contemporary South African security officials who were kind of hinting that they were quite willing to expose the South African death squads. Because if you think about it, I mean, this is an ANC government that's been ruling for 30 years in some in some people's minds, not very competently. And from political purpose, it's, it's in their interest to highlight the bad things, remind everyone how bad apartheid was. And that could be a vote winner, you know. Look here, don't look, don't look at our economic mismanagement. Look at the mm. the the death squads. So, in in a sense, it is in their interest to expose it. But, but the, the 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 hostility to letting the story out came from uh, Swedish intelligence in officials who went down to South Africa. Can yeah, you tell something about that? 
Yeah, the recordings that was made actually by by uh, a good friend of mine who, who who's been traveling to South Africa with a uh, with government officials uh, and officials from from the secret police. Um, they actually said that there was there were negotiations going on with between the South Af African government and uh, the Swedish government, or at least officials from the two governments. Um, and in the end, they didn't agree, and most likely because the Swedes couldn't grant amnesty to to all the South Africans that were involved, which was a condition by the South Africans. Um, so, so that I can't say that. That I know that that ha happened, but it, there are recordings and there there are officials saying this on tape, so uh, from South Africa. So um, it seems quite likely that that was what happened, and that would also explain why uh, the police and the prosecutor looked so awkward when they presented this lone killer because they knew that it wasn't mm. him. Okay, so I'm now going to ask one of those uh, sensitive questions. Um. You know, there was no security detail for Palmer that evening. And a lot of people say, well, you know, the, the Swedes must have been part of the plot at some point because it required quite a lot of local knowledge. So even if they were South African hitmen, they had mm -hmm. Swedish assistance. And we know that um, in Swedish intelligence community, there was a lot of hostility to Palmer, partly because they thought he was a communist. Do you think there was Swedish intelligence involvement in, in part of the assassination? Um, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. That it's uh, not uh, not intelligence as such, but individuals from intelligence right. from the yeah. secret police, um, uh, most likely, or I'm, mm. I'm almost certain. Uh, mm. And there are even names to to those people, a couple of individuals. So, yeah. and do you? I, you don't have to necessarily tell them to the vast audience of TNT, but do you have in your mind the names of the candidates of the guy who pulled the gun, pulled the trigger? Yeah, and 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 that's sort of the most uh, hard part to 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 really know. But I have two names that I believe are the strongest candidates to have done so, mm -hmm. um, and it was a very chaotic situation. And if you look at the the witness statements, it's actually extremely diverse so you can't really read uh, even if the person had a hat or not, or and or if he was uh, thin or uh fat or if he was uh, running with a limp or running athletically there there there's hardly anything you can read from the witness statements but i have two names that i think are the strongest candidates. one if they're watching this are they alive today yes both of them are alive today right okay so we've got a few minutes we're going to talk about your next project because that's also on a subject that concern um, interests a lot of swedish uh writers which was the death of the um, one of Palmer's crown prints, some people say, was Ban Carlson, who was the head of the Socialist International and had mm -hmm. a similar profile in terms of his views. And his death in the Lockerbie crash has yeah. prompted a lot of speculation because, you know, was the Lockerbie crash? Did they really bomb this thing just to get rid of this man who was involved in the Namibian peace process? Really exciting stuff. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, at the time, Bernd Carlson, he was actually the UN commissioner for Namibia, and he was flying back to take part in the signing of the tripartite agreement that would grant Namibia finally its independence. So that um, that happened actually the day after. But he he got a meeting flying back from Brussels. He got a meeting in London with the South African diamond uh, monopoly De Beers, uh, which he had to take. 
he, he actually called them polished gangsters. Uh, that was his word for them. Um, but he had to take the meeting. Um, and um, they then after the meeting, they took him to the airport Heathrow and waved him off. And then he got blown up uh, together with 258 other passengers um, in the Pan Am 103. Um, and I, I've spent a few years now doing research into this. And I believe that uh, the answer to my question in the beginning of my next book, uh, was it just a coincidence that he was on the plane? The answer is mm. no, it wasn't just a coincidence. Uh, he wasn't the main target, but they used the fact that this plane would be blown up to get rid of him also. That's and, interesting. Uh, so. So there was information that that plane was going to be blown up and they saw to it that he was on that plane. Yes. Wow, that's incredible. There were a lot of warnings, actually. Someone had mentioned the numbers, 13 warnings, but they were wow. very tangible warnings against uh, American planes and American diplomats had actually had the opportunity to, they had even had the, uh, the recommendation to use other air, airlines if they were flying to the US. Um, because Pete Bota avoided that flight, I think, didn't he? I mean, the uh, South African foreign minister. That has been debated, but I have some new information that points to that direction that he was actually. He so avoided. tell us, um, well, I, I heard from um, uh, my, my sources that um, he threw his girlfriend into snow once when the car drove past in Stockholm saying they're out to kill me. And that he said, you know, I'm the only one who really knows the truth about the Palmer assassination. So uh, maybe that was a way to get rid of a, a dangerous uh, person who could reveal a lot. So tell us, when when is your next book? And uh, I'm sure documentary series coming out. We've got 30 um, seconds left. The, the, my next book should be ready. I'm, I'm finalizing it now, and it should be published in Swedish in, in September, hopefully in, in, in a year's time in English too. Okay. That's excellent, Jan. Thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll all look forward to reading that. Take care. Take this care. is TNT Radio. Take care.